six um, of Nursing 2003. Um, the topic of week six is COPD, and we're going to talk about that in terms of emphysema and chronic bronchitis. The objectives of this uh, recorded lecture um, will come to as no surprise. We're going to talk about the definitions of COPD and particularly um, emphysema and chronic bronchitis. We're going to look at the etiology and risk factors the pathophysiology, and again, breaking it down into emphysema and chronic bronchitis. We'll look at the clinical manifestations, complications, diagnostic tests, and treatment strategies. So as you can see, this is just according to your um, templates that you use for seminar and labs, and so um, you can always use them to f during lecture to fill out the key points as well. So as always, it's important to remember the normal anatomy and physiology in order to understand the pathophysiology. And I know you know this, um, but just to review what we're going on, uh, sort of the parts of the respiratory system we're going to cover today in discussing the pathophysiology, um, we're going to look at it here. So we will talk about the airways, um, particularly um, the bronchi, the bronchioles, and the small terminal bronchioles that lead into the alveoli. Um, they are certainly one site um, that COPD um, pathophysiology has an impact. We will talk about the respiratory epithelium, which lines the air, airway. Um, and so the respiratory epithelium um, has goblet cells, which produce mucus, um, which um, is um, a protective thing for us because it traps microorganisms and debris. And the, another protective aspect of the respiratory epithelium is this, the ciliated cells with the little hair-like cilia on top, which help push the um, mucus um, up the respiratory tract and help us get rid of it. And that's just a little electron microscope picture of our ciliated cells in our respiratory epithelium. And then the last part that we'll talk about um, in terms of the pathophysiology is the alveoli, um, which as you know are, is for oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange. Um, they're one cell thick and they exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide with blood in the capillaries which sur surround them. Um, they expand during inspiration when the pressure is low and then they recoil back because they also have these elastic fibers that you can see in the picture. So you have these little um, sort of sacs, air-filled sacs, you have the capillaries and you have the elastic fibers. So setting that was the background, uh, just to remind you about these, you know, what's in the um, respiratory system. Um, so what is COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease? So uh, from your text, it's a progressive respiratory disorder characterized uh, by airflow obstruction that's partially reversible, systemic manifestations and exacerbations of increasing frequency and severity. So things to take away from this is that it's progressive, meaning it's getting worse, um, the airflow obstruction is partially reversible, which certainly means it's partially not reversible. Um, there's local and systemic manifestations, and, um, and there's these periods of exacerbation. So COPD is, is an umbrella term, um, this uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, um, and it includes uh, chronic bronchitis, emphysema, and asthma. Um, all three of those are obstructive. You'll see more, I know there's more, and you'll see in readings that there's more emphasis on just diagnosing people with COPD, but I, I still see emphysema and chronic bronchitis, and also I think it's a useful way to think about the pathophysiology and clinical manifestations because they impact different parts of the respiratory system. 
So emphysema is enlargement of the air spaces distal to the terminal bronchioles, and we diagnose that um, by imaging, x-rays, CT scans, things like that, uh, to look at those uh, air spaces. Chronic bronchitis, on the other hand, uh, which involves um, in, um, production of mucus and airway structural changes, that's clinically defined, which means um, we find we diagnose that by history, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And you can see from the diagram there that people can have one of these things, just chronic bronchitis, just emphysema. More commonly, um, actually, they might have a lot of overlap with the symptoms, and asthma as an intermittent obstructive disorder uh, can overlap as well. So the major symptoms of COPD just really come down to two things, and you'll see this repeated as we talk about it today. So dyspnea, um, which limits your activity, um, and mucus production with a cough. So my question uh, to you to reflect on is what is dyspnea? And I did um, include an article, uh, dyspnea is the sixth vital sign, um, that was based on the RNAO uh, practice guideline. Um, and dyspnea being difficulty breathing, you know, what does that mean uh, to you? And so I would encourage you to reflect for a moment, maybe pause the, the video, um, and think how would this impact your life and think about three things you might have to do differently in your day-to-day -day life what you did today and what you did yesterday, say, um, if you had dyspnea. And certainly, you know, when we were talking in lecture, people were saying, um, oh, you can't sing if you have dyspnea, you can't yell, like how do you get mad at somebody, really? Um, you can't walk far, like all sorts of things. And COPD is a global problem and a global disease. And this is from the World Health Organization uh, page on COPD and some things that people with COPD said they couldn't do anymore because of their dyspnea. Like dancing, food shopping, walking, um, independence, like going to the market alone, um, and then also having some financial and social impacts. And I just included this um, quote, which is an old quote, um, and yet still so true. So it was in a 2019 paper, but the quote's from uh, 1961, about how one must be impressed by the very long road medicine and nursing must travel before an understanding of a disease is reached, even when its clinical symptomology is relatively simple. So I just use that as a prelude to say, yes, the two major symptoms known for a long time worldwide of COPD are dyspnea and cough with mucus production. Um, but the pathophysiology behind that is um, becoming more understood, uh, but it's still a long way to go uh, and is interesting um, and uh, has many facets to it. So I'll just say that as a prelude. So in terms of the etiology, uh, in Canada, uh, the major cause of COPD is smoking cigarettes. So approximately 90% of cases in Canada are from smoking cigarettes. Um, however, clinically significant COPD develops in 15 to 20% of smokers. So that obviously there must be other factors such as genetic susceptibility. And I have down there in my little thought bubble, what about vaping um, and smoking marijuana? Um, you know, there's sort of, you know, vaping seen as maybe a harm reduction from smoking and marijuana being recently legalized. Um, does that affect COPD? So I was curious. Um, I don't have all the answers, but I did find a 2019 study on uh, use of cannabis uh, without tobacco is associated with significantly greater risk of COPD with an odds ratio of 1.5 or 1.5 times the chances. 
Uh, and then the e-cigarettes, another 2019 study uh, that basically uh, concluded that we need more research and we won't know for decades if it impacts COPD. Both of those references, if you're curious, um, and they're of course just the tip of the iceberg, but they're in uh, the final slide. So what is cigarette smoke? If cigarette smoke causes 90% of COPD in Canada, what is it? This is just from your textbook, but a reminder that it has about 4,000 chemicals and gases, so it's a complicated um, item. Uh, over 60 carcinogens, but that's a whole other story. Um, the nicotine in it can stimulate the sympathetic nervous system. So we talked about nicotine as um, a risk factor in terms of hypertension and cardiovascular disease. We're going to talk, focus on how um, items, um, things in cigarette smoke stimulate the inflammatory response and cause oxidative stress. Um, and then just another factor of cigarette smoke is the carbon monoxide has a high affinity for hemoglobin, so it's going to impair your oxygenation. So although smoking is the main etiology of COPD in Canada, there are others. Uh, so there's passive smoking, which is kind of the same thing, but um, secondhand or even thirdhand smoke. Um, occupational chemicals and dust, indoor cooking and heating, in other words, other kind of environmental um, uh, irritants. Um, and um, I, I, I did have a lovely client um, in the past who lived quite a number of years in a um, a refugee camp and did her cooking inside um, you know with whatever biomass was around um, and she had quite severe COPD despite never having smoked. Other things such as air pollution, uh, recurring respiratory infections don't cause COPD but can certainly exacerbate them. We are going to talk about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency in just a few minutes um, and aging, again, doesn't cause COPD, but can worsen it because of the loss of the elastic recoil. So the, when we're talking about the pathophysiology, if that's the etiology, talking about the pathophysiology, the one thing to definitely remember is COPD is a disease of chronic inflammation. Uh, so the inflammation of the respiratory bronchioles and the alveoli, as well as the pulmonary blood vessels, which cause airflow obstruction, because of mucus and bronchospasm, and airflow limitations because of a, a decrease in elastic recoil. This, this idea that, that uh, when you um, exhale, uh, part of that is this elastic recoil working, as well as loss of lung tissue. So just uh, to, this is my simplified version of the pathophysiology, is that it's based on inflammation due to cell injury from the uh, inhaled cigarette smoke which causes damage both to the bronchial tree, which causes bron chronic bronchitis, and damage to the alveolar tissue, which causes emphysema. Uh, so I'm going to look into exactly what happens um, to both the bronchial tree and to the alveolar tissue. So this one, um, this particular flow chart is from your uh, textbook. Um, does not speak to me, so I'm going to skip it. And then I'm going to come back to it after we talk about um, just what I showed you, how, um, how the etiology, the, the inflammation because of the cigarette smoke or the other irritants can cause damage to these different parts of our respiratory system. So first, just a reminder, what is the inflammatory system again? Oh yeah, we did it in the beginning and it'll be on the midterm. Um, so it is a sequential response to cell injury. So that's always very important. If there's cell injury, there's probably inflammation. 
And the purpose is to neutralize and dilute the inflammatory agent. And then a key in this chronic inflammation that you'll hear about is um, the purpose is to remove necrotic material. If it's going to remove necrotic material or damaged or dead cells, um, it has to break them down. Uh, so it creates it. So it, it has enzymes to help break things down. And then it establishes an environment suitable for healing and repair. Difficult to do when you have chronic inflammation. So this is, again, my simplified version um, of what's happening um, in terms of, of this pathophysiology, if we look at it in a little bit more detail. We'll just keep looking at it in a bit more detail and a bit more detail as we go. So you have this environmental insult like smoking that leads to inflammation. The middle steps um, is this oxidative stress. Uh, so um, all those chemicals that are coming in, the inhaled chemicals with the cigarette smoke, have these unstable molecules um, with, with electrons that you know want to steal other electrons. They're very reactive and unstable, and this causes cell injury, and we call it oxidative stress. Um, and so as we just said, cellular injury causes inflammation. The other thing I just said was that um, part of the role of the inflammatory response is like the cleanup crew to clean up all the injured and dead uh, cells. Um, in this case, that happened because of the oxidative stress. And it does that through enzymatic reaction or these proteases. So you get inflammation and you get increased proteases. Um, the environmental insult, like smoking, uh, also has a, an effect to decrease the anti-proteases because usually in our body we have the cleanup crew trying to go around uh, enzymatically breaking down um, old cells and dead cells um, but with the proteases but we have the balancing system with our anti-proteases um, so unfortunately uh, the environmental insults such as smoking both increases the proteases um, through the inflammation process and also decreases the anti-proteases. And we'll see why that's so important. And off there on the far left, I have again that alpha antitrypsin deficiency, which decreases anti-proteases. So it's like always a little sidebar in what we're talking about. So just to summarize a bit about inflammation and COPD is the central concept in the pathophysiology. Um, COPD involves a chronic inflammatory response, you think, uh, if the, you have these, um, this oxidative st uh, stress because of these uh, reactive molecules called free radicals coming in every time you smoke, 20 cigarettes a day, every day of the week for 50 years or 30 years or something like that, that's just this chronic inflammatory response. Uh, the predominant inflammatory cells, um, like other inflammatory responses, are neutrophils, macrophages, and lymphocytes. And as I say, they release these proteases as part of the inflammatory process. And then there's this cascading inflammatory process that we've talked about before. And so ultimately you end up with inflammation and also an increase in proteases because of the cleanup crew and a decrease in anti-proteases because of the effects of the cigarette smoke. And just to, to, to drive the point home, protease is an enzyme, one of them is elastase, which can break down tissue. Protease is found in uh, the neutrophils and macrophages as part of the inflammatory response. You have anti-proteases such as the alpha-1 antitrypsin, which inhibit proteases. That's natural in our body to try and balance out the two sides of things. Smoking increases proteases and decreases anti-proteases, so there's an imbalance, there's a problem. 
And then the, the little sneak peek, um, why we care, is alveolar walls are destroyed when there's an imbalance between proteases and antiproteases. So that's important for emphysema, as we shall see. And then to talk about that little sidebar, alpha-1 antitrypsin is an antiprotease. And some people genetically have a deficiency in alpha-1 antitrypsin. So it's not a very common cause of COPD, less than 1%. However, if you have a client who's young and doesn't smoke and has severe COPD, I'm sure one of the tests they do will be for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency um, because it's a cause of the severe young um, COPD. So, so far, what we've talked about is there's an endothelial cell injury. There's injury, there's inflammation. Uh, so it causes an inflammatory response. Uh, this causes an increase in proteases and a decrease in antiproteases, which results in some structural changes to the airways. So let's look, remember I said that um, we'll look at COPD in terms of how the cellular injury, how, the, how, how this um, insult to our body and the chronic inflammation impacts the different parts of our respiratory system. So first we're gonna look about how it impacts our, um, our respiratory tree, our bronchial tree. Um, so our bronchioles and our smaller bronchioles. Um, and so this chronic inflammation uh, because of the cellular injury, uh, because of the cigarette smoking, does three things. One, there's the infiltration of the inflammatory cells um, into the walls of the bronchioles. Uh, so this causes this airway fibrosis and narrowing because of the inflammation of the smooth muscles. As well, um, there's uh, this goblet cell. Remember I showed you that picture of the epithelium uh, that lines our respiratory uh, tree. Um, that have these goblet cells that produce mucus. Well, those hypertrophy, and you get increased mucus production, um, which is part of the cough, as you can imagine. As well as you get a death of the airway epithelium ciliate, ciliated cells, so less cilia movement to move that mucus out. So this mucus becomes trapped, you can get infection, you get um, congestion, and, and you get um, obstruction of your airways. Um, and that's what leads to the chronic bronchitis. So that's the impact of the inflammation um, on uh, the respiratory tree. So in terms of a picture, you can see the normal bronchus on the far left, it's smooth muscle and it's open airway and it's little functioning mucus glands um, and the cilia, which you can't see because they're too small. And then in chronic bronchitis, you have this chronic inflammation where you get that remodeling of the airway because of the inflammation with an increased number of mucus glands and excess mucus uh, also obstructing the airways and causing the chronic cough. And so if we walk through it again, we've got cell injury causing inflammation with an increase in proteases and a decrease in antiproteases. I keep mentioning it because it's gonna come up with these structural changes to the airways because of inflammation as well as hypertrophy of the goblet cells with an increase in mucus, damage to the ciliated cells, causing difficulty with clearing the mucus. So now if we go to the other side of, the, um, of what we're talking about, the emphysema side. So we've talked about the respiratory epithelium. We've talked about the uh, airways, the bronchioles. Now we're gonna talk about the alveoli. And this is where the concept that now we have lots of proteases um, and less antiproteases uh, comes into play. So if you recall back when we talked about the anatomy, 
um, that these alveoli are very thin, single-celled, small little air sacs surrounded by elastin and capillaries. Um, but now the proteases will start breaking that down. So if you're breaking down that alveoli unit, um, you will one, end up with decreased elasticity or ability to recoil because you've broken down all that elastic fiber. And this will end up with air trapping within the lungs, which we'll talk about the symptoms of. So you can't get your air out. As well, the little structural supports for the tiny little terminal bronchioles that end up in, alveol in the alveoli also break down, so they collapse. And so again, you get this air trapping where you can't push the air out because the bronchioles are collapsing. And then lastly, um, the, the proteases will, will do what proteases do. They will break down the elastic uh, fibers, but they'll also break down the alveolar walls. So you'll get more um, bigger air spaces instead of all the small little grape-like alveoli, you'll get these bigger air spaces um, and you'll get these hyperinflated lungs. And so that is the, what, what causes emphysema. So if chronic bronchitis, um, is the impact of inflammation on the airways, the bronchioles, and the respiratory epithelium. Emphysema, emphysema um, is the result of inflammation and particularly the imbalance between proteases and antiproteases on the alveoli and the surrounding structures. So in terms of a picture, on the right you see the normal lung, you see our little healthy air sacs, um, we see our little terminal bronchioles uh, coming into them, and there's that capillary network and the elastic fibers around them. And then when we have emphysema, where the proteases have caused the lung tissue damage, we have a loss of that elastic recoil because we've lost the, um, the elastic um, fibers around it. We've lost surface area because the alveolar walls have broken down. There's a loss of the vasculature around um, the alveoli which leads to this hyperinflation and air trapping and increased work of breathing. And I thought this was just an interesting little sidebar and um, a way to show and demonstrate um, what this kind of air trapping means. Um, so these are some um, measurements in somebody with COPD and normal lungs. And if you look at the first line in terms of the lung volume, you see the lung volume in COPD is actually quite much larger uh, than the lung volume in somebody without COPD. Um, but the surface area in your lungs is down because all that tissue damage. The number of alveoli has gone down, again, because of the tissue damage, and the number of, of airways is decreased. So you have these hyperinflated lungs, but less actual tissue damage. And if you're curious what MLI is, it is the mean linear intercept. It's basically how far you can draw a line before you hit another wall in the alveoles, uh, so it's, it's a measurement of how much um, tissue damage there is. So, putting it all together, you start with the endothelial injury causing inflammation and an imbalance of the proteases and antiproteases, leading on the one side in terms of your respiratory uh, tree to structural changes in the airways, hypertrophy of goblet cells and damage to the ciliated cells, and on the other side, in terms of uh, the alveoli, you get the damage to the alveolar tissue, causing a decrease in elastic recoil and decreased surface area, and this hyperinflation. And so this picture just sort of demonstrates that, that we're talking about different areas. On the left, we're talking about the bronchial tree with the mucus and the airway remodeling and the inflammation causing obstruction. And on the right, 
emphysema down at the alveolar level, causing um, uh, tissue damage so that there's less air exchange that can take place, less elastic recoil, and this air trapping. So now I'll go back to the diagram in your textbook, and hopefully it makes more sense to you. Um, this is how I think of it. So on the left, if we're talking about the respiratory tree and the effects of chronic inflammation, we can see how uh, the inflammatory cells and the oxidative stress um, have an impact um, on the bronchioles, uh, resulting in peripheral air remodeling and as well as the mucus. And on the right, uh, we have our alveoli uh, with the imbalance in the proteases and the antiproteases causing um, tissue um, damage and destruction of the capillary bed. And then we'll go into the clinical manifestations later, uh, all of them. But as I said in the beginning, really it comes down to two things, a productive cough and progressive dyspnea, uh, which we talked about. And, and, and if it's progressive, it means it gets worse. Um, so these, this is a particular dyspnea scale, the MRC breathlessness score. And it's based on history because of dyspnea is, of course, a subjective experience. Um, and, and you can maybe see that's very similar to how um, the different uh, levels of heart failure, um, one to four, in terms of the, the New York heart failure classification system we talked about last week. Um, so it's similar because it's based on history. So if you're level one, you're not troubled with breathlessness, except maybe a strenuous exercise all the way down to level five, where you're too breathless to leave the house, or you get breathless even when you're getting dressed. So in terms of the pathophysiology, we just talked about it, and now we're in clinical manifestations, and I said there's two of them. So why is there a productive cough? Pause the video, and I coughed. Pause, pause the video for a second, and think of two reasons, if you haven't written them down already. And uh, the productive cough is uh, due to the increase in mucus production by the goblet cells and the decreased action of the cilia, um, as well as the airway remodeling causing the obstruction itself. But the cough is because we have all this mucus that we can't get rid of if you have chronic bronchitis. And why is there progressive dyspnea? So give three reasons. So we talked about this um, in terms of um, the tissue destruction, um, so there's progressive dyspnea or the sensation of difficulty breathing. This is less surface area for gas exchange in the alveoli. There's this air trapping um, and there's the decreased elastic recoil. So the work of breathing is higher. And there's also um, the increased small airway resistance because of the uh, mucus as well as that airway collapse I talked about. The tiny little airways collapse because of the lack of the destruction of their support systems and the fibrosis and remodeling. That's kind of more than three reasons. In terms of the air trapping, I just wanna suggest right now that you take a breath and then breathe out, but not all the way, and then take another breath and breathe out, but not all the way, and keep doing that, and you might get this sense of what it's like to have this hyperinflation, that you can never quite get a full breath because your, your lungs are hyperinflated and that the work of breathing increases. So some other clinical manifestations that go along with that dyspnea and cough. Um, the cough quite often is in the morning because of the collection of mucus. Uh, because of the difficulty with breathing and this hyperinflation, you might see accessory muscle use like the neck muscles or the intercostal muscles. Because of the, elastic, the lack of elastic recoil and the obstruction, you'll see this prolonged expiration phase where people are um, trying to blow out their air 
through obstruction, which is why they might use purslip breathing. Um, people might assume a tripod position where they're leaning over to improve their respiratory effort. If you listen on auscultation, there might be wheezes, there might be crackles, there might be decreased air entry, if that's what crackles up there. And there might be a change in the color of the skin, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, and so the symptomology, as you can imagine, if somebody just had chronic bronchitis or just had emphysema, uh, is different. Um, and it is, again, it's a bit of a useful way, I think, of thinking of these two factors, even though most people uh, probably are like those Venn diagrams have, have both parts of this. Um, in um, textbooks or if you go to like the nurse labs online to study for an NCLEX, quite often they'll call this uh, the blue puffers, or the pink puffers and the blue bloaters. I just didn't put those terms up because I thought if I had COPD, COPD, I wouldn't want anybody to call me any one of those. But in terms of chronic bronchitis, the symptoms, we talked about how it's more of the airways with the mucus production and the damage to the cilia and the remodeling of the airways. So you're gonna get this like chronic productive cough, you're gonna get purulent sputum, um, you might have some dyspnea, um, you might, they call it blue, blue bloaters because you might have some cyanosis and I'm gonna talk about that in just a minute when I talk about the vascular changes. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the possibility of right-sided heart failure, so you might end up with edema. You'll have this prolonged expiration. I'm going to talk about the complications in a minute. But for emphysema, or you know, this destruction in the alveoli and the lack of elastic recoil, where you get all this hyperinflation, the work of breathing goes up uh, tremendously, as I try to sort of mimic by this idea of like trying to take a breath and not breathe out and take another breath. Not, so there's not as much cough, but quite a bit of shortness of breath or dyspnea. Um, the skin is more pink, um, and I'll talk about that in a minute when I talk about the vasculature. This is where you might also get that purse lip breathing, accessory muscle use. And this, the work of breathing is hypermetabolism. Uh, hyper uh, it's going to use a lot of calories. People might be cachexic. Um, this is where people have that barrel chest because of the hyperinflation. And instead of having crackles, you might have decreased breath sounds. So of course, when uh, when people are overlapping, you can have both of those sets of symptoms in various degrees, but it, thinking about them in these two different ways, I think helps um, think about what the pathophysiology is. So in terms of complications, um, there are both respiratory and systemic complications. One is, is pneumonia, because I've just said how you, you have all this trapping of the mucus. Um, that can't um, get out because the cilia is not working and because of obstruction. Um, and so uh, it can, you can get this infection with pneumonia. You can get pulmonary hypertension, which we um, just hinted at uh, last week during heart failure um, because of um, vasoconstriction within the pulmonary vasculature. We'll talk about that in a minute. You can get secondary polycythemia, and that is an increase in red blood cells due to the chronic hypoxemia or lack of oxygen in the blood. So as a compensatory mechanism, um, there's the EPO um, stimulates um, the production of more red blood cells. And in fact, sometimes I'll see people have a very high hemoglobin, a very high red blood cell, and, and you're thinking, oh, what's going on? And it's because they're smoking for long periods of time. You can get the skeletal muscle changes, particularly in emphysema and nutritional deficiencies. Um, and there's this progressive increasing disability 
Um, and another thing is that there's a pretty high comorbidity with depression and anxiety. So again, a reflective question, why is there, would you think there'd be a high rate of depression in persons with COPD? Um, this study did find uh, that the depression rates in COPD are about 20 to 40%. So that's pretty significant. And as we know, we know as nurses that um, you know, depression and lack of motivation and a feeling of hopelessness can certainly reduce compliance with medication or adherence, as we like to call it now, I should take that word out, um, and worsen people's prognosis. So it is definitely something to consider. So as promised, I was going to talk about the vasculature and hypoxia and hypoxemia. So another one of our compensatory mechanisms that we have in our body is that um, if a part of an alveola is not being um, oxygenated well, um, so it's hypoxic, so tissue, lack of tissue oxygen, the, um, the capillary nerve will vasoconstrict. Uh, so this is to prevent you know, perfusing places that have no oxygen. Uh, so it, it can be quite useful in um, emphysema, where you have a destruction of the alveolar areas with both the capillaries and the alveoli themselves destroyed, um, they're destroyed together. And so you don't have as much hypoxemia or uh, decreased oxygen in the blood um, because other areas are still matched. So other areas are not destroyed. So the capillaries and the alveoli are still working together. However, in chronic bronchitis, um, with this obstruction, you can have areas that are perfused without being oxygenated and areas that are oxygenated without being perfused. So there's this mismatch. Um, and so you get more um, hypoxemia. Um, and that's where you get this polycythemia or an increase in red blood cells and this kind of bluish reddish tinge, uh, which is why they're called blue bloaters. Um, other things that happen to the vasculature, um, you know, and I talked a bit about um, the right-sided heart failure, is you get all this vasoconstriction because not just like one little area is um, damaged um, and uh, uh, having hypoxia, lots of areas are damaged and having hypoxia. So you get this vasoconstriction of the small pulmonary arteries. You also get, because of the inflammation, thickening of the vascular smooth muscle and because of the protease, anti-protease imbalance um, and the destruction of tissue, you get the loss of the capillaries around the damaged alveoli. So all this adds up to increased pressure in the pulmonary vasculature, which leads to pulmonary hypertension. And we talked last week about how pulmonary hypertension causes this back pressure into um, the right side of the heart, into the right ventricle, um, leading to right-sided heart failure. So you know, also called core pulmonale. So you know uh, from last week that most times right-sided heart failure is caused by left-sided heart failure, but it can also be caused by uh, respiratory uh, conditions such as COPD. So question for you, what are the symptoms of right-sided heart failure? A little study from last week. You can pause this video again and put them down, but I will tell you now. Uh, so this is um, from last week. Um, if, you, if you've got a right ventricular failure because of the backup of blood uh, from the pulmonary system, that's going to back up into the systemic venous system. And so you're going to get symptoms related to the venous system. So like the distended jugular veins, um, the enlarged liver and spleen or hepatomegaly and splenomegaly. Uh, you can get ascites. And then the, one of the, with the common symptoms is this edema. 
uh, because of the backup of pressure into the venous system. So another major complication of COPD is acute exacerbations of COPD. Uh, this is something that is seen in primary care, like in my world, um, a lot. Um, it's a major cause of hospitalization. Um, and it's because of the impaired mucus clearance in the lower airways, so you're predisposed to infection. And then people present with worsening shortness of breath, increase in sputum production, colored sputum, and a cough. Um, and this can lead to respiratory failure um, uh, as well, and so it needs to be treated. It's one of those self-management things where we need to tell people what the signs and symptoms are when they, um, when they should come in and get their acute exacerbation of COPD treated. So back to this picture, see if we missed anything. If we look down at complications, we talked about the secondary polycythema, polycythemia uh, due to hypoxemia in chronic bronchitis because how the oxygenated alveoli um, are not necessarily matched with the capillaries so uh, because, because there's variable obstruction. And so you get this mismatch um, where you have some places well perfused but poorly oxygenated and vice versa, so you end up with hypoxemia. And then you can also get this pulmonary hypertension due to the reactive vasoconstriction as well as the other vascular changes ending up with core pulmonale or right-sided heart failure from chronic pulmonary hypertension. With emphysema, uh, the complications really are around this increased work of breathing, so you can get this weight loss, um, and because of the dyspnea, and you can also get pneumothorax because of the bullae, which are these open, the tissue damage causing larger air sacs um, that can break into um, uh, and cause a pneumothorax. So in terms of assessment, history is key. Um, so one is smoking history. Uh, if it caught 90% of cases are caused by smoking, it's good to know what a person smokes. Of course, as we know, 15 to 20% of people who smoke get COPD, so it's not guaranteed, um, but we definitely want a smoking history. Talk about their symptoms and the progression of symptoms um, based on that um, uh, staging of COPD and of dyspnea. We wanna know what activities they tolerate, any comorbid conditions and what medications they're taking, particularly respiratory medications. And then in terms of a physical exam, of course, you always wanna do vital signs, including oxygen saturation, uh, and a weight because of uh, people with emphysema having cachexia and weight loss. Um, people, and then observation, never, never discount your powers of observation. So if you walk in the room and the person has this prolonged expiratory phase, and a barrel chest, got a tripod position, pursed lip breathing. You can see their accessory muscle use in terms of their necks or their intercostals. You've already got a lot of that assessment. An auscultation, you might hear wheezes or decreased breath sounds or crackles, depending on if there's mucus or tissue destruction. And then in terms of the right side of heart failure, you might find edema or increased JVP, ascites. And then in terms of the skin, uh, you might see cyanosis or that blue-red discoloration because of polycythemia. And so what vital signs would you, uh, and O2 saturations, would you expect? You know, what, what would you anticipate going into somebody with COPD? Um, so definitely you would, um, in terms of the respiratory uh, vital signs, um, a decreased oxygen saturation and an increased respiratory rate um, and the other um, heart rate and blood pressure and such, depending on if they have right-sided heart failure and things like that. 
So the paper that I also put up, uh, the dyspnea as a sixth vital sign, and sorry, this is a bit blurry, um, but I thought it was a good paper to remind us um, about our assessment. And you know, um, I ask about assessment in terms in the assignments, um, and I think it's very important because it demonstrates understanding of the pathophysiology and is good nursing. So in terms of dyspnea, um, we were looking for any changes into their usual levels. So an increase in respiratory rate, probably an increase of pulse uh, in terms of trying to maintain oxygenation, and the blood pressure could be up or down depending on um, their cardiac status. We want the breath sounds might be decreased or there might be wheezes or crackles if there's mucus. Um, the, the inspiratory depth may be shallow, particularly with this hyperinflation. There might be these accessory muscle uses. Um, and then uh, we want to be aware of if there's sputum or cough changes because of the acute exacerbation of COPD. So in terms of diagnostic tests, you see I've included history here again. Remember right off I said that chronic bronchitis is determined by history. It's a chronic productive cough for three months uh, in a year for two successive years. And then with that, we of course want to ask about smoking history to find out what the etiology is that. Um, emphysema is uh, determined by usually by imaging, so chest x-ray or a CT scan, that sort of thing. We're going to look for blood tests such as for alpha antitrypsin deficiency um, and a CBC to look for that polycythemia. Uh, probably going to do arterial blood gases. Um, spirometry is key for the diagnosis, so I'm going to talk about that in a minute. The six-minute walk, um, I've never really had too many people do the six-minute walk, but apparently you walk for six minutes and they see how far you can go. And the echocardiography, uh, which we talked about last week, as useful um, to determine um, heart failure um, and sort of real-time movement of the heart. So question, what acid-base disturbance would you expect if somebody was not breathing very well um, and not being able to exhale um, their air where, well because they have an obstructive pulmonary disease. So we'll look at a question. So George Kent, 54-year-old man, with a history of COPD, uh, comes into the emergency department with shortness of, shortness of breath and a cough with yellow-green sputum. And he has a difficulty completing a sentence uh, because of his shortness of breath. Um, one of his sons says he's been unwell for three days. And he has crackles and wheezes on auscultation. He has a high heart rate and a bounding pulse. And the measurement of his arterial blood gases is as follows. His pH is 7.3, PaCO2 is 68, and his HCO3 or bicarb is 32. Uh, so how would you interpret this? So I encourage you to pause the video because uh, we know ABGs are gonna be tested from now until eternity, uh, including the NCLEX. Uh, so pause the video and figure this out. I will talk about it a bit. So his, well, let me show you the next one. Presuming you've paused and answered. So he has a respiratory acidosis partially compensated. And if we talk it through, we see his, his um, pH is 7.3 and we know normal is 7.35 to 7.45. Uh, so he's at, he has an acidosis. So we already know that. We just need to know, is it respiratory or is it metabolic? So his PaCO2 is 68, and that is very high. It's normally 35 to 45 because he can't exhale his carbon dioxide. So we know a high PaCO2 uh, means a high carbonic acid, lots of H+, so that um, is also reflective of an acidosis. So that agrees with the pH, so we know it's a respiratory acidosis. 
And then the bicarb, HCO3 minus, is 32, uh, normal 23 to 28, or 22 to 28, some say. Um, so that is also high, which reflects an alkalosis. So that is pulling it at the pH in a different direction, so we know that's the compensation. It's not fully compensated because the pH isn't normal yet. So it's a respiratory acidosis partially compensated. So spirometry. Spirometry measures um, the, the rate that you expire, that you can blow out your breath, as well also the total volume of breath. Um, and it's done in this way um, where literally you blow into a tube and it measures uh, flow in a tube. And the whole key of spirometry to work is you have to do it well. Uh, you have to really blow out everything in your lungs as fast as you can, as hard as you can until like everything is blown out. And so the key is the tech and the spirometry technicians making sure you do that. So they are cruel to be kind. So this is where uh, COPD can be diagnosed as well as other obstructive um, disorders, uh, pulmonary disorders, because if you have an obstruction, it's harder to blow your air out. Um, so if you look on the left-hand uh, diagram there, um, and normally we can blow most of our air out in that first second, that far right-hand side of the graph. So if you think you take a big breath, big of the rest you can, like this, and then blow it as hard as you can, as fast as you can, um, most of your air comes up in that first second. If you have an obstructive pulmonary disorder, you cannot get most of that air out in that first second. You have that prolonged expiratory phase, as you can see in the red line in the graph um, at the far left. When you actually see a picture of spirometry, it looks like the one on the right, which makes no real sense, but it does. Um, because it's the same thing if you start um, at the uh, far left there and go up, that's your breath in, going up, and then uh, going down, it's your big breath out, out again. And then the loop down in the bottom is your inhalation again after you breathe everything out. So you can see in COPD, um, that expiratory um, part of it has this real dip because they cannot get everything out uh, fast enough. And then this is uh, how we diagnose COPD. Uh, so we have the forced expiratory volume in one second, or how fast you, how much you breathe out uh, in that one second, over um, your vital capacity, which is how much you breathe out in total. And that is less than 70% in people with COPD. And you can also just look at the forced expiratory volume in one second, which they compare with what's predicted, like for somebody of the same age and gender. Um, and then obviously that goes down, the worse your COPD is. So finally into treatment, um, if the major etiology is smoking, we can guess that the major treatment is smoking cessation. It is certainly the most significant factor in, in treatment. Um, and, and this is, I always find an interesting chart and there's many versions of it out to show what the impact of quitting smoking is on somebody who's been a chronic smoker. So if you have a, so the, the, the red dash is uh, people who've never smoked or people who smoke a lot, but they're not susceptible to smoke. Um, you know, like somebody's grandfather who smoked till he was 104 kind of thing and had no problems. Most people though, the susceptible smokers would follow that blue line where the forced expiratory volume in one second goes down, 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 down as they have more obstruction. And that would just takes a, a curve all the way down until there's disability and death. However, people quit smoking, that um, the rate of decline approaches that of just everybody else who's aging. So although you don't 
get, go backwards, you can't improve your lung function, you can decrease the decline. So if you look at the green dash sign, you'll see somebody who stopped smoking at 45. So that line starts getting the slope of just the regular line. And you can see how much extra years of life and how many years without disability potentially that person may have. And even if people smoke late, there's somebody at that, that little, I don't know what it is, brown line, um, dark maroon, uh, stop smoking at 65, you can see there's still more years um, of life and less disability there. Uh, so I find this is a great motivational um, kind of information for people who are thinking about quitting. Um, and then there's, of course, medications for COPD, uh, commonly bronchodilators, uh, you know, inhalers, um, either short or long-acting bronchodilators. Those are typically given through a spacer, such as over here on the right, to make sure that the technique is correct and people are actually um, inhaling appropriately the medication. There's steroid inhalers, which are used less for COPD, but are used depending, they might have some other, um, other components. Um, of um, obstruction. Uh, so some people are on steroid inhalers. Certainly for exacerbations, people might get a short course of systemic steroids like prednisone. Uh, there's antibiotics for exacerbations and oxygen therapy as well, which is titrated up um, to, to whatever the prescribed O2 saturation is. So on that note, just talking about oxygen as a medication or a pharmacology, um, back in the day, Way, 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 way back when I was a nurse and uh, starting off, is there was always this rule that you never gave somebody with COPD more than two liters of oxygen by nasal prongs um, because they were CO2 retainers, which they are. We just saw that with the ABG question. Um, and what does that mean? Uh, so normally, and people without uh, respiratory disorders are um, breathing is stimulated by high CO2s. But in people with COPD, uh, people can have chronically high CO2 levels. And so those chemoreceptors that respond to the CO2 become less sensitive. And then more of the stimulus for breathing becomes a low oxygen levels rather than a high CO2 levels. Um, and so the idea is that if you give high levels of oxygen to these CO2 retainers, uh, the drive to breathe may be lessened. So in the past, where like they had these pretty strict rules about, oh, don't go over two liters by nasal prongs, now you'll see more um, this idea of titrating oxygen to whatever the target is. And quite commonly, the target for people with COPD will be something like titrate oxygen to, be, to achieve uh, oxygen saturation between 80 and 92%. It's not like we're trying to get people up to 95 or 97. And it's also um, where people are comfortable. Uh, so why is it necessary to titrate the use of oxygen in persons with COPD? For this reason, uh, so that they have the oxygen that they need. Oxygen therapy is very important, um, but that is in a safe and comfortable way. So other treatments for people with COPD are certainly immunizations like their flu vaccine and their pneumovac. Um, there's pulmonary rehabilitation programs to improve um, their respiratory status and their um, muscle strength. Uh, people can have surgical therapy, such as lung volume reduction surgery, if there's places in their lungs which are not participating in oxygenation. I have had clients with that, as well as lung transplants. Nutritional therapy is important, especially for that hypermetabolic state in people with emphysema. I mentioned that self-management is 
important same as for the heart failure clients because people are dealing with their chronic progressive disorders at home all the time um, and need to know when to seek help and need to know when to change their medications on their own, for example, increase their bronchodilators, that sort of thing. Um, psychosocial support is important, of course, because um, we talked about the high rates of depression and anxiety, naturally. I mean, dyspnea would be very anxiety provoking. Uh, so lots of psychosocial support. And of course, in advanced stages, there may need to be advanced care planning. So last question, a patient is newly diagnosed with COPD due to chronic bronchitis. You're providing education to the patient about this disease process. Which statement by the patient indicates they understood your teaching about this condition? Now, if you happen to be thinking as an aside, what is this question asking? Like if you want to restate it, it's saying which one of these things is true because it's the statement that shows that your teaching was good. So A, if I stop smoking, it'll cure my condition. B, complications from this condition can lead to pulmonary hypertension and right-sided failure, heart failure. C, I'm at risk for low levels of red blood cells due to hypoxia, may require blood transfusions during acute illnesses. Or D, my respiratory system is stimulated to breathe due to high carbon dioxide levels rather than low oxygen levels. So think about it for a second. I can pause the video and then I will show you that it's this one. We talked about how um, all that basal constriction and changes to the pulmonary vasculature and destruction of the capillary beds can lead to this pulmonary hypertension, which can cause this backup into the right ventricle and right-sided heart failure. So that one is true. Uh, if you stop smoking, certainly it's going to improve your, your uh, trajectory um, of your lung condition, uh, but it will not cure your condition. And we know uh, that people with uh, chronic bronchitis in particular can have high levels of red blood cells or polycythemia because of the hypoxemia. Um, and we just talked about how respiratory systems are possibly stimulated, not because of the high carbon dioxide levels, but because of the low oxygen levels, so the opposite. So hopefully uh, we covered all the objectives. We defined COPD as that umbrella term with emphysema being uh, the destruction of tissue in the alveoli and that um, and the chronic bronchitis being the increase in mucus and the airway we're, we're modeling and the death of the ciliated cells. Um, we talked about the etiology as being primarily uh, smoking um, and we talked about the pathophysiology of emphysema and chronic bronchitis both coming from the uh, toxic insult of cigarette smoke or other, you know, biomass burning and occupational exposure, things like that, um, but having different outcomes. So that chronic inflammation for emphysema um, leading to the imbalance between the proteases and the antiproteases resulting in that tissue destruction. Um, and for chronic bronchitis, the inflammation leading to hyper, um, like having too much mucus uh, from the goblet cells, death of the ciliated cells and airway remodeling. We talked about how the clinical manifestations are also different between the chronic bronchitis, which is a lot of cough and mucus production, emphysema, uh, which is this hyperinflation of the lungs and the dyspnea. We talked about the complications, including acute exacerbations, right-sided heart failure, polycythemia. Um, we looked at the diagnostic tests with an emphasis on spirometry and some treatment strategies. So I hope that covered. Um, everything you need to know about COPD, at least for now, um, and have a very good week.